these infants are like strange creatures and when they get to the ability that you realize you're making an impact as like their influential adult like it's kind of fun when it's successful right i mean there are of course like battle stuff that you have to go through but when they bring something up that you've tried to teach them you're like dang like this is actually working out <laughs> come on goofball <laughs> so i'm julia i live in a rural area in michigan yeah it's like a daily hustle it's like get up real early do all the things we're out of oranges. No. Try to manage where the children are going because that's tricky. Like, who's going where? Who's picking up? When does the bus come? So, I packed in grapes instead. Grapes. And packing all their crap, you know? So, it's definitely like a running juggle. Welcome to Where's My Village? Fortune's podcast about the childcare crisis in America and stories of the people who are trying to fix it. I'm Ellen McGirt, and I'm so excited to be back for this final episode because it's about a topic that's near and dear to my heart. You just heard from Julia Gutierrez. She's a mom of a five-year-old girl and an eight-year-old boy, and as she said, she lives in a rural Michigan town. Gutierrez was previously a family services manager of a Head Start program. She's now a mental health associate with the Alliance for the Advancement of Infant Mental Health. With two young kids and a demanding full-time job, she and her husband are constantly performing a high-wire balancing act that's familiar to most families out there. Like, for me, I have to have plans and routines for it to be successful. Put your shoes on. And Gutierrez also revealed that her introduction to motherhood was quite difficult. It was a transition. I always say that it was a transition to motherhood for me. Um, we had our first beautiful baby boy and I struggled a lot with postpartum depression, like tremendously. And I am so thankful that I had the language for that. Like I kind of knew because my professional setting was in infancy. Okay. like. I'm having really awful thoughts. Thankfully, I knew that that was not healthy. I remember the day specifically, I was in a staff meeting and the person who I very much looked up to, she said, I finally started seeing a therapist. And when she said that, it, was, it like gave me the permission to seek it out for some, you know, that's just how it went for me. So that was kind of that journey. So that's a lot. While struggling with postpartum, Gutierrez was also struggling to find care for her infant son. She lives in Santa Clara County, Michigan, which is considered a childcare desert. There are about 5,000 children ages birth to five in the county, and there are less than 2,500 preschool slots, leaving half of the county's youngest kids without access to center-based care. I had the newborn infants going heavily through depression. Love this baby, but he was a lot. But when I went to go sign him up for daycare, I was distraught. Like, locally, I called every daycare in the one town that I was working in, and they can only take two infants. 
like there's like a really high ratio for infant care. So everyone I called was not accepting infants. And I was like, well, shoot, what do I do now? <laughs> I guess it was just kind of like a slap in the face when it's like, holy crap, you have to go back to work in like two weeks. Where are you going to take this kid? But thankfully, Gutierrez had another option. Our family, that is who we've relied on. My grandfather, who is right now 84. My mother, who was battling with diabetes, could hardly see. She couldn't drive. She was on dialysis. My husband's sister, she was working at McDonald's and she changed her schedule to be able to care. So like she would do two days a week and then my mom would do two days a week because she had dialysis and then that kind of worked for the McDonald's schedule too. So this kind of complexity, which is also familiar to lots of families, requires next level organizational skills. A shift schedule of care shared between three different family members chose to switch around their work schedules and work around their dialysis to care for an infant in the family. Again, that's a lot. And Gutierrez and her husband didn't directly pay their family members, but they find creative ways to compensate them. For example, they paid her mom's cell phone and utility bills. And every year they give Julia's aunt a portion of their tax return. Gutierrez and her husband relied on this rotating family care for the first few years of their son's life. And they were planning to continue this rotation. But when their daughter Isabel was born two and a half years later, the family suffered a devastating loss. We, a couple years later, we had a girl. When she was three weeks old, my mom passed away, which was like devastating. Like, ugh, I'm still dealing, I th and I, th I don't think it'll ever be easy to deal with grief. So my mom had died, which was my main daycare. And I was like, oh God. So my husband's mother stepped in. She was stay at home at that time. She wasn't working. So she took Isabel for a year. And then my aunt, who is, uh, she worked for the school system for 40 years. She retired early so that she could babysit. Um, so she took on Isabel, like that is Isabel's like second mom. They like hang out all the time and are like, probably have a great relationship better than and I do, so. So this is where the village steps in to care, to help, and to heal. When we ask Gutierrez why she thinks so many of her family members have been willing to chip in and help care for her children while forming their own special bonds with them, she was initially at a loss for words because to her, the answer is obvious. That's a really good question. I've never thought about that. I will say the first thing is that is Hispanic culture that, I mean, like, we brought in the elderly into our homes. We took care, like, that is just, we are in your face, <laughs> like, family. I think it's because we immigrated to a different country that that's what you had, was people, like, your blood to rely on. Gutierrez's great-grandfather immigrated to the U.S. from Mexico by way of Spain. He worked in Texas as a rancher for a number of years before migrating to Michigan to work the land. Her grandparents stayed in rural Michigan, and the Gutierrez family just kept growing over the years to include many more blood relatives along with chosen family. And when a new kid comes along, they are just a new little family member for this village to love. For lots of people, for lots of cultures, this is a natural way to be. The idea that when you come to a brand new place, all you have is each other, 
Gutierrez says this close-knit web of family and friends not only provided care for her children, it also helped her heal. Thankfully, I have such a broad family support that the loss of my mom has not been extremely um, detrimental, I think, for my experience. So I always say, too, that I would never be able to pursue a career and raise children if I did not have the family support. But, you know, like not every grandparent has the ability to do daycare. I mean, that's just not a privilege for everyone. Gutierrez brings up a great point. This type of family-based communal care is just not possible for everyone for countless reasons. We know that you actually have to be in a community to benefit from community care. And we also know that America is a country that prioritizes the individual. But what if all American families had access to some version of communal care like Gutierrez does? What would that mean for kids and parents and for our society as a whole? As we've spent the past year reporting on childcare in America, we've uncovered ways the government, companies, and even entrepreneurs are supporting families. But from the beginning, we knew these groups didn't have all the answers. So in today's Where's My Village, we are exploring another pillar that's been supporting families and their kids for a long time, the community. In this episode, we talk to an activist about creating community in a country that would rather we not and tell the story of Little Sun People, a child care center built to serve and strengthen the Brooklyn community it's proud to call home. So the nuclear family, (laughs) which is often weaponized, is really kind of just extension of this idea that of the individual man, right? Right. Conventionally, like if we look at kind of, you know, historically, the family, you know, man would get married and he'd have kids, but like kids and wife and land were all kind of property. But it was still kind of like his individual fiefdom. And that model is, I mean, it's antithetical to people. Mia Birdsong is a family activist who advocates for stronger communities. She's the author of How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community. And in this incredible book, Birdsong looks at what is currently separating us from the human need for community and how we reconnect to it. She told us that writing this book was part of her rejection of the idea that she and her husband were going to raise their children alone. Birdsong is ready to reclaim the communal history she feels is inherent to many of us. I think people of color who have come to America, and I think that it's been easier for white people to kind of separate themselves from this knowledge, but everybody has ancestral history of living in you know, a village living in the collective where people are sharing responsibility for taking care of children and elders and kids got to hang out all the time. While reporting her book, it became clear to her that in order for people and by extension society to feel whole, we have to connect with each other. What became clear to me is that that was a prioritization of connection. It was a not just an acknowledgement, but like a deep claiming of the fact that human beings are fundamentally interdependent. And that just the notion of being an independent person doesn't make any sense. 
we live in a culture that says that being able to like do everything on your own is a measure of morality and strength and capability. Mm-hmm. But what we're really doing is we're trading connection and relationship and belonging for money, which we use to get the things we need. Birdsong found, both in her reporting and in her personal life, there is one group of people who really understand the importance of interconnectedness. I have so many friends who have wondered, especially when they have infants, why it is so challenging. And I'm always like, because two people is not enough to raise children. And the people who I think, in my experience, are the clearest about that is single mothers. I was raised by a single mother. I vividly remember, like, you know, coming home from school on the bus and I'd forgotten my keys. Like, I could totally go to my neighbor's house because we knew our neighbors and I could stay there until my mom got off work and could come fetch me and let me in the house. Like, that was just, there were just people around who I knew I could count on for things. And having a network of adults to rely on is more than just literally looking after a kid when their parents aren't around. And sometimes it was about sharing money, right? Somebody needed to pay an electric bill. Somebody needed to get a car fixed. And then, of course, like watching each other's children. And then you just have these kids who are building relationship with each other, these kids who are building relationship with these other women. And nobody feels like they have to do it all on their own. So let's take a moment to unpack what Birdsong is saying here, because it goes right to the heart of the issue. She is describing the most beautiful version of a deep human impulse. In this case, single mothers and their neighbors coming together to support each other financially, emotionally, and logistically. These organic networks affirm that human need for connection that she hit on earlier. But I think it's clear that forming these networks is easier said than done. You don't need me to tell you that we are really isolated from each other, a pandemic that forced us to stay in our homes, a dangerous political divide that has turned would-be stakeholders into ideological combatants, income inequality, unequal access to healthcare and education and credit, and the digital town squares we were promised turned out to have real limitations. Even if you're lucky enough to find safety and affinity in online spaces, they're unlikely to be much help when you're home alone with a sick kid and a grumpy manager and you're afraid to hit the light switch because you're worried the power's been turned off. So that leads me to the big billion dollar Nobel Prize winning level question. How can we build community in our own lives? Birdsong and her husband started a babysitter's club with their friends so they could spend more time with each other alone without their kids. So their kids could spend time with other adults without their parents. When my husband and I had our second child, I got to this point where I was like, we have not had a date in a really long time. And it was with two other families who also had you know, kids kind of around the same age as, as our kids. And every other Saturday, one family would take the kids for like four hours, you know, babysitting and date night is really expensive. So I was like, let me, let me take care of the, like, we'll pay for date night, but not the childcare part. But our kids were also building relationships with these other adults. And I remember I went to pick up my kids from Chris and Ellen's house and I walked in and Chris was holding my son and they were just like gazing into each other's eyes and like had this like smiles on their faces. And I was like, oh, that, (laughs) like they love each other. And, And I was like, that's what this is for. Like that is, that's what I'm talking about. I'm like, yes, I get to have date night with my husband, but it is also that there is like more love in my child's life. More love in my child's life? 
Yes, more of that, please. But it's a powerful way to frame the problem to be solved. It's not just about helping exhausted, under-resourced parents. It's also about upping the supply of love to the most vulnerable members of society. Now that's a village. We asked Birdsong if she found there were demographics of people who were more likely to rely on communal childcare. People who are marginalized in some way, that those are the groups of people who have the closest relationship to our collective liberation, who are practicing things that lead us in that direction, who are honoring traditions and ways of being that I think pull us in that direction. And I think that's because if you're marginalized, right, if you're poor, if you're queer, if you're indigenous, if you're black, if you're a sex worker, if you're disabled, the systems that exist, government, institutions, societal systems that exist, don't work for you. So in order to survive, you have to look someplace else. But I find that what people create for themselves outside of those systems is really beautiful often. And for me, as someone who both has identities where I experience oppression and identities where I hold power and privilege, for me, those practices, those ways of being, like, light me up. And I'm just like, oh, like, that's how it could be. Like, that's what we could be doing. The ideas Birdsong raises here connect back to what we reported in the very first episode of Where's My Village? Marginalized people have long been underserved by government-sponsored childcare support. Remember that the country's first welfare program created in 1935 explicitly excluded Black women. Remember Nixon? We can blame him again. With the 1971 veto of the Comprehensive Child Development Act, or CDA, which killed our country's chance of providing universal care to all Americans, including low-income ones. And remember that current child care vouchers come with all sorts of strings attached to women's work hours and lifestyle choices, one that are coded to race and socioeconomics. So when it comes to child care, just like many of America's systems, women of color and low-income women are either not considered or actively discriminated against. So it makes sense to me that these groups would look to each other for care, which makes them hackers, innovators, systems designers, and in a better world, the leaders in the quest for the village we all need. And there's something that both Julia Gutierrez and Mia Birdsong brought up that I think is important. Communal care multiplies a kid's support network and gives adults a number of shoulders to lean on. Similar to Gutierrez, Birdsong believes she is where she is because of her community. You know, I'm sitting here now in my house in North Oakland. I am married. I have my 2.5 kids and the dogs and, you know, all the things, the retirement account. But when I look at that, when I look kind of like under all of that, one, I'm very clear that I had a lot of help along the way. And that the idea that like hard work is what leads to success is just nonsense. <laughs> so when I say that I got lucky, I'm not diminishing my own accomplishments and achievements, but it really is about just getting lucky and like being in the right place at the right time, having people who were able to help me navigate systems and get to where I am. I've seen more and more people turn to their communities, at least I think I have, to help them through the cascade of crises we've had to navigate over the past few years. I was wondering if Birdsong had noticed the same thing. Is this a moment for hope when it comes to community and specifically community childcare conversations, at least that? 
Yes. I'm going to say yes, just like full stop. I think that we have seen enough examples of what's possible to be like, oh, yeah, we're not going back to what we did before. Like we can see we see that the government is perfectly capable of mobilizing resources um, (laughs) to make sure that we all have, you know, that we're not getting evicted, that we're not having to, you know, pay our student loans that we all we're getting a little money in our bank accounts we've also seen what communities are capable of right like the mutual aid movement so many mutual aid groups they didn't start during covid they existed before right like those things can't just spring out of nowhere because they're built on relationship i feel like we're also seeing the terror of the dying systems mm. lifting its Death head rattle. yes and i think that it's so important for us to hold our belief and attachment to the hope and possibility. All right, so I do love this message of hope. As a reporter on the race beat, it doesn't always come naturally anymore. And I also find the idea of focusing on the higher purpose of a community intriguing and inspiring, even or maybe especially when the community in question is aware of its own beauty, history, and marginalization, and takes on the noble task of lifting as they climb. Black is for the race that's us. Green is for the left, uh-huh. So the black man can take this right road Well, my family came here when I was two years old. I call my parents refugees from the Deep South, where neither of my parents felt like they were treated humanly. So they moved from the South, came to Bedford-Stuyvesant, that's where they landed. And there was a huge community of other Black people, just like themselves, who were young, hopeful, and very vibrant. Fela Barcliffe, now widely known as Mama Fela, is the founder and director of Little Sun People, a community child care center in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. She's also raised four of her own children in the neighborhood. But before we get to Little Sun People, it's important to cover Mama Fela's lifelong relationship with Bed-Stuy. As she just said, her parents came to Brooklyn during the Great Migration, one of the largest movements of people within the U.S., Between 1910 and 1970, nearly 6 million Black Americans fled the racial violence of the caste system in the Deep South to make new lives in northern cities like New York, Chicago, and Detroit. When the Barcliffs and then toddler Fela arrived in Bed-Stuy, not only did they find a neighborhood overflowing with Black life and creative expression, they found a built-in community. For me, on a Saturday morning, it, it was almost like Porgy and Bess, like somebody <laughs> would whistle and then all the children would come out and we would head to the movie theater, which was on the corner from where we lived in on Lexington Avenue. And we yeah. laughed and through all those Westerns, that was the life of the block and afterwards come out, have ice cream that was homemade at the church on the corner, and then play games up and down the street all day long, skating and biking and running and jumping and playing ring alivio and tag. I was uh, a real bed kid. And my parents at that time were just happy young people. But, you know, the disappointment set in pretty quickly. It didn't take too long. 
It's worth noting just how special this experience must have been, and it really has me in my feels to listen to her. My dad, who served in World War II in the segregated army, came back to South Carolina, was barred from voting, and denied many benefits owed him in the racist New Deal, got himself right up to Harlem, USA, which is also a beautiful and complicated place to grow up. Didn't have this true neighborhood vibe, at least not for me, though. Bed-Stuy was a beautiful black neighborhood, but it was still in America. My parents were two of those people coming to New York and making it big and doing well and being able to provide. But more than that, being able to hold their heads up, to not have to step off the curb, to not have to bow down their head whenever they walk past a white person or, you know, to feel proud of themselves and who they were. It didn't take long, though, for them to find that those jobs were not, they were menial, just like the jobs that they had left in the South. And so little by little, that truth seeped in. And then what I noticed among my parents, their friends, my extended family, was drugs and alcohol started to enter into the picture. What happens when that enters the picture is the picture goes off. It's not, it's not that bright, wonderful picture. It now becomes like a sadder, more haunted picture. And that's what happened with my family, so many community members and you know, little by little, the community. And then heroin hit the street. And little by little, like practically every friend of mine and everybody I knew, well, especially a lot of the boys. And then it just went downhill from there. As a schoolgirl, she was ignored, excluded, and discriminated against. She was also not taught about her own history as a Black American and as a member of the Black diaspora. At the school that I went to, I was nobody and nothing. I, I really felt like I did not exist at my school. I, I, I was just there. You know, I never had a Black teacher who saw me. I, I, we didn't have any. So the schools that I went to were just, they were just awful. And so I, I just learned how to educate myself. I would sit in the library, read, 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 read. I go home, read, 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 read the encyclopedia, read any book that I could find. And I just love reading. And But it would take me out of the world that I was in mm-hmm. because the schools that I went to and I felt like I was invisible. So I spent just about an hour with Mama Fela and it was pretty clear at the end of that time that she is just not one to take things lying down. She found ways to educate herself about the history of her people, and she's refused to let her schools kill her spirit. And then when she had her own daughter, she wanted to put her in a school that saw and honored their Blackness. She couldn't find one, so she started her own. As I realized how much I was missing, how much I had missed, like this big, huge gap in my soul, I was like wow, if I ever have a child, I wouldn't want that to happen to them. And so when I became a parent and then I was getting ready to go out and get this job that I was interested in, I realized that I first have to find a place for my child. And I started searching and I couldn't find anywhere where there was any more of a story than the one I had gotten. And that shocked me. It's like, how could I possibly put my child in a situation that I hated so much that was so destructive to me that I barely escaped it, you know? Um, So I thought, okay, I'm going to start a school for her. When she gets ready to go to elementary school, then I will turn her over to them and I'll go on. (laughs) 
Right. <laughs> I discovered that that work was for me. I loved it. In 1980, Fela Barcliffe started the school she wished she'd had when she was a little girl, Little Sun People. She redesigned the floor of her Bedsty brownstone and began advertising the school to parents in the neighborhood as a space for Black children to experience a curriculum where they could learn Swahili and African drumming and hear about people like Malcolm X and Rosa Parks. Little Sun People took off, and she felt she'd found her life's work. Five years later, after the center's opening, Barcliffe and her center were being evicted by her husband, nonetheless. The couple was divorcing, and as the Brownstone's owner, her husband forbid her from continuing to run the center from that home. Luckily, the community lent her a hand. In 1985, G2K Wayuzi, the founder of the Black liberation organization, The East, helped Little Sun People get a space in Bed-Stuy's Restoration Plaza. Now, opening in Restoration Plaza allowed Little Sun People to grow. Today, the center serves 75 children, ages 2 to 5, and it employs a total of 14 staff members, all of whom were recruited directly through the community. Every one of my staff members is a working-class Black woman. Mm. The two key staff members are my daughter, who I started the school for, and my niece, who I raised from the age of nine. They were always at the school working from the time they got their working papers at 14. And then some of the other teachers or people who came to me through um, beloved parents, through good friends, through, um, you know, our relationship with a couple like Meg Evans College. We have long term people. One of my staff members has been there 26 years. Uh, another one's 18 years. Um, wow. Nobody, only one, two people are under five years. So today, while many of their students are supported by government subsidies, Little Sun People charges market rate tuition for their preschool. But for many of their center's early years, they charge next to nothing. Mama Fela remembers a time when they charged parents $12 a week. I asked her how they could even stay open at that rate. You know what? Because it was a work of love. It was love that was keeping us going. You know, we just loved the work. It was so exciting. We were so young. So we had a lot of people and friends who would come over and do things for free, who would cook and who would paint and who would make music for us and, you know, make dolls, you know, because we had to make all of our own dolls back in those days. And, you know. So yeah, people, a lot of people contributed. It wasn't only my sacrifice, but it was also a lot of my own. One of the cornerstones of a Little Sun People education is its Afrocentric curriculum, meaning it centers Black and African culture and history, which represents Little Sun People's student population, which is almost entirely Black. Now, I don't have to tell you how poignant it was to listen to Mama Fela, given the context of today, with school board meetings turning into shouting matches about critical race theory and classroom teachers being run out of the profession for their reading lists. But from her lips, it all makes sense. As we grow, the curriculum grows. As we deepen our understanding of a historical perspective and understand more about our people, who we are, where we came from, our connection to the land, to the continent of Africa, and all of those things that happened for people say tens of thousands, but you know, could be hundreds of thousands of years prior to enslavement. 
but we have so much. It's like our history, our story. It's amazing. Now, let me paint you a picture. The Little Sun People space is alive. The walls are covered with student art depicting their families and favorite superheroes. There are illustrations of monumental black icons like Stacey Abrams, Kobe Bryant, Miles Davis, and Serena Williams wallpapering the entryway. Afro beats, drums, and nursery rhymes trickle through the air as the Little Sun people move their bodies in time with their teachers, clapping and encouraging them. The large open space includes six different classrooms, each serving a different age group with two teachers per class. On the day our producer Alexis visited, the older three-year-olds were making coconut curry chickpeas and rice with their teachers, Mama Nakia and Mama Jasmine, who led them through the step-by-step -step process of making this delicious smelling dish. Who's gonna try the chickpeas? In another corner of the room, the four-year-olds gathered to hear their teacher read the book, bringing the rain to Kapiti Plain and to make rain sticks. And in yet another corner, the younger three-year-olds were learning the letter A, as in Angola, which is in Africa. We're in Angola, in Africa. The other important thing to know is that focusing on preschool kids is an intentional choice for Mama Fela. One of the things that I have found from my experience, and then from the experience of so many other people that I've spoken to, is that these foundational years is where all the stuff is. You know, <laughs> whatever you're doing, your counseling, your therapy, your whatever, the first thing they want to do, what happened when you were one and two and three and four and five? These years are the critical years. They make all the difference. I can't remember which one of our folks said it's so much easier to provide what's necessary for a child than to have to fix a broken man. Yep, it's yep. like these years to me are the critical years. I wanted to make a difference for my people. I really feel committed to that. Just working and making money, it just wasn't enough for me. Yeah, I wanted to do something that I felt was going to help change our situation as a people. So another thing Mama Fela is intentional about is involving her students' families in Little Sun People's day-to-day. She has seen over the years how schools often exclude Black parents from decision-making and disregard their input. She believes that in order to be a true community school, everyone in the community gets a say. And the Little Sun People families, along with the larger Bed-Stuy community, have been the school's biggest champions over the past four decades. The support is still the same. It's from the parents, it's from the community, it's from other grassroots people like myself who understand something about how important it is for their child to have some picture of who they really are, some place where they can establish an identity that can stand up to what we have to face, what they will have to face, what we all have to face, which is global racism. And so those parents, even if they didn't understand like the whole theory behind it, on a, on a gut level, they mm. got it. 
In fall of 2021, Mama Fela was named one of the winners of New York City's Competitive David Prize, which comes with a $200,000 cash award. Mama Fela says the money will help fund some big plans to scale up Little Sun people. I did give my teachers a little gift from that because I felt like they are the reason why Little Sun People is as good as it is. You know, they power that program. So everybody had to get something because it's not just my award, it's ours. And the other thing is that the plan is to codify the curriculum that we've been developing over all these years. In addition to codifying their curriculum, she dreams of expanding Little Sun people beyond preschool into a K through five continuum, it means they're planning to soft launch a kindergarten class in January of 2023. They're also planning to start an after school program for older kids next year. Another reason Little Sun people can think of expanding their offerings is because they just move into a new, much bigger space. We doubled our space. We have now 10,000 square feet, and that is glorious. We, we've been trying to actually get a building in Bed-Stuy forever, but we just were never able to accomplish it. It's just real estate here is just, it's so doggy dog. And unless you're doggy dog, you're not going to get it. So we just moved um, a few weeks ago, actually, into our new, um, our new location. And we really love it. Uh, we're very excited about it. It's not exactly in Bedside, which hurts me. It yeah. breaks my heart because it's on the borderline of Bedside. It's not the same. So it is true that Little Sun People's new location is on the border of Bedside, literally the dividing line between that neighborhood and a more affluent neighborhood called Clinton Hill. But this move was far from the first time Mama Fela felt far away from her beloved neighborhood. The challenge and difference for, for us now is gentrification has come down so intensely in New York. I mean, it, it just feels like our Black people have just taken flight. They're just yeah. leaving or they're gone. So it's a really different atmosphere. Mm -hmm. The people that are still here that are Black and Brown or either very poor, which I'm sure you're aware of, or they are what we would call the talented 10, you know? So yeah. many of the parents that I currently serve are in that group called that I would call the talented 10. So they have a easier time navigating the, the system and they are not as, you know, destroyed by it. But the parents of the children who are very poor and I'm not as much in contact with them as I once was. So I would say that our community now, it's almost like having two communities that we live in. Yeah. You know, here, especially here in Brooklyn. So yep. it's difficult now to have the same community connection, tightness. The community is very, very, it feels shattered to me right now. Oh, I felt that right in my heart. But this is where community, as tied to a physical location, really does get complicated. Neighborhoods change over time, and it is absolutely true that Bed-Stuy is changing. The neighborhood gained 30,000 new white residents between 2010 and 2020, and it lost 22,000 Black residents in the same time period. But what's also true is that Mama Fela and Little Son people are committed to their community and the families that they set out to serve 40 years ago. 
And for me, it also raises some hopeful questions about what it means to have students grow up knowing their history and their worth as they operate in majority culture environments. You know, diversity. One thing that I'm sure about is that no matter who contributes or whatever I win or whatever this or that, I'm sticking to the goal and the mission, which is to be there for my people, my little young ones, those little sun people. Yeah. They mean everything yeah. to me. Yeah. So the prize is great. And I felt like it was a validation yeah. for all these years when people have said that we were insignificant, yeah. that we get a chance to have a light shine on us to say this work is not only not insignificant, but is important. It's important for these little people. Yeah. It's going to impact their lives forever. And that's what we need desperately. We have to stop feeling like we're nothing and we're nobody and we're not enough and we're not good enough and, 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 and always having to hit that glass ceiling and not know that we can create our own ceiling. We don't have to go to, their, to anybody's glass ceiling. You know, we get to go and let the sky be the limit. And in the end, what Mama Fela and the Little Sun People team want for their students and their community is pretty simple. So finish this sentence for me. I walk out into the world as a little son student. Who am I? Who am I? I, God, so strong. Yeah. Strong, powerful. Yes. Yeah. Confident, assured. Yeah. Know who I am. Yeah. Pleased with myself. Love myself, love my people. So the black man can take this. All right, let's see. Fela Little Sun People is a truly amazing example of what can happen when an extraordinary leader has a singular, unwavering vision of how to serve their community that they then relentlessly pursue. And Julia Gutierrez's family is an example of how a network of people can come together to care for two little kids who now have a whole bunch of adults who love them. And I love Mia Birdsong's idea about community care and her neighborhood babysitters club. All three of these women show us what's possible when we put community at the forefront of our minds. But we would be remiss if we didn't mention the elephant in the room. All of these care models require a ton of work. They are labor, emotional, physical, financial labor that in this country are not often appropriately respected or appreciated. Monica Ramirez is an activist, civil rights attorney, and the founder of the organization Justice for Migrant Women. I don't want to be negative about community care, but I think that's because community care has always been treated as like something where like if you can't afford other care, it's almost like a last resort. And because it's, you know, no one's paying them to do that necessarily or not, not what they should be paid. And so I, I think we have to have the resources and structures in place. Place, so that community care doesn't become an additional stressor. And I don't think that as a society, we are acknowledging the labor and the stress that comes along with providing that kind of care. And that's an important but tough piece of the conversation about providing more love for our kids, right? There seems to be an intangible belief that care work is not work, especially for people who are not being monetarily compensated for it or undercompensated in most cases. This underscores the notion that community care is either done out of necessity or is a luxury that most of us don't have the time or resources to create. So are we back to where Beth Coet, Maria Aspen, and Megan Leonard 
all landed in the three previous episodes of Where's My Village? Is support from the government necessary to make community care available for all? I think community care is beautiful in that that's a way for us to pass on traditions. That's a way for us to build social capital. That's a way for us to like have networks in our community, all very important. And so I think in order for it to become more prevalent to have a community care situation in our country, we've got to open up space for people to just be in community in the first place and then see community care as an option. And that requires infrastructure support, right? That requires um, programming for communities. That requires like good, safe parks, you know, spaces and places where people can be in community. From my perspective and where I live in the country, I think people are more, they're more um, to themselves and a lot less in community spaces. And, and I think because of that, it kind of lends itself to not being as trusting. And I think in order for us to move to a community care uh, system in this country, we have to have more trust in one another um, in addition to their supports. Well, friends, we are at the end of this podcast adventure, and I will very much miss the reporting my colleagues and I have done to try to answer the question of who is trying to fix childcare. But you can keep thinking about all of this, and we certainly hope you do. Because yes, I do think we need a major system fix to make childcare work in the U.S., and that will likely take government intervention. But after spending so much time thinking and learning about how real people have tried to solve these problems on their own, it occurs to me that the big barrier is a cultural one. In the U.S., we are already in community with each other, and we just don't seem to know it. The family who can afford a nanny has as much at stake in the well-being and future of the kids whose parents can't, and we cannot create a vibrant and joyous society that can also solve the big problems we all face unless we do it together. But thinking about childcare as a way to bring more love into the lives of children just might work. It just might make us all better leaders, advocates, workmates, aunties and uncles, and of course, voters. So thank you. Thank you for coming on this journey with us over these five episodes of Where's My Village? We're so proud to have brought you the stories of state and local governments, corporations, a union, startups, and communities who are all working to make childcare accessible for everyone. And we know we've only scratched the surface of what's out there. So until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Where is My Village is produced, written, and reported by Alexis Hott. Nicole Vergala is our editor. Original music is by Bennett Pastor. Our fact checker is Lushique Lotus-Lee. Special thanks to everyone we interviewed in this podcast and to Moms Rising, who connected us to the moms we interviewed for the series. Moms Rising is an online and on-the-ground organization of more than one million mothers and their families. Megan Arnold is our executive producer. And Where's My Village is a production of Fortune Media. 